Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Back in the building and a happy Halloween to the host. What is going on? Are you trick-or-treating tonight with uh, with your new grandchild, or are we uh, are we not doing that? Is Grandpa not doing that? First, it's uh, plural grandchildren, two boys. Well, uh, I, I specified new because I imagine the older one has been trick-or-treating before. Uh... Yes, and I'm not sure if this is the younger one's first or second time. Because remember, the sec the 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 younger ones always come up a little quicker because of the you know the the older one. There's only 18 months separating them. So okay, uh, okay. right now they're two peas in a the pod. There's, to me, there's no difference between them. Tell you the All truth, right. the younger the younger one is is the uh, is running the show. To be honest. <laughs> All right. Uh, but in the immortal words of Michael Jordan, we're back after a, a nice break as we took care of some uh, program business uh, during the month of October. And uh, so we say formally welcome back to Rochon Recovery, 646-564-9909 is the number. Um, this is our first show of our fourth season, even though it's not our by calendar, we haven't like completed our third full year anniversary wise. But I again always count the very first show, which is the special show we did in honor of the Monsignor on October twenty right. fourth, I believe, two thousand fourteen, um, as the first show. So. This is the first show, so this will be season four, episode one. <laughs> <laughs> this is opening night right here. This is big stuff right now. Yep. I love it. I absolutely so, love it. Lots to uh, lots to cover, lots to talk about. Hope we don't freeze out our callers in, in terms of time, but uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to get to. One second. Just drinking some water. Um, 
with that said, let's uh what do we want to talk about first? Let's talk about let's do some sports first, then we'll work our let's, way backwards. Let's do it. Oh, yes, indeedy. Yes, indeedy. Well, uh, I guess what we'll touch on before the trade deadline, because you did mention there are some things you wanted to talk about the trade deadline. Let's talk about uh, because we've I've heard some debate and I can get behind either side of the coin with this. But so uh, your main guy over there in Dallas, Ezekiel Elliott, six-game suspension uh, upheld and reinstated, and he'll begin serving that. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on the idea that uh, they're moving forward with it, even though it seems like with the power they gave Goodell in the collective bargaining agreement, everybody knew that this was going to stand. It was just a matter of time. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of multiple arguments that – that are being made on his behalf. And again, none of them have to do with guilt or innocence. Um, Even though he was never charged by two jurisdictions. Um, And again, they keep on referencing article 46 of the collective bargaining agreement. And I never thought this was an article 46 issue. But unfortunately, I think the NFL players association made it an article 46 issue, which is very difficult to win in the courts because it's very vague, it's very broad, et cetera, et cetera. Um, However, my personal opinion, if I'm Ezekiel Elliott, regardless of what happens, um, to be tagged with the label of a domestic abuser, even though he was not charged in the criminal, uh, in society, put it that way, um, but for the NFL to say we're going to punish you because we believe that you did do something, um, I fight it to the death until I can't fight it anymore. Um, until every court, you know, down and says, you know, you have we have no jurisdiction, et cetera. This way, in the end, no one can say, especially if you have the resources, no one can say that you did not do everything within your power to clear your name. Right. And so that would be my position, regardless of this setback. I would appeal it, and I would. And I would go all the way to the Supreme Court and let them say no, and then people can say, well, there's nothing more that you can do. You've done everything within your power. You've used the resources that you have available to try and clear your name in the NFL eyes, that is, not in the society. Um, And so that's what I would do, and I hope that he does that if he believes that uh, he's being unjustly accused by the NFL. But so we'll see. They only the court only gave them that reinstated the uh, or removed the temporary stay because this is what's happening. They're not ruling on whether or not the suspension is valid or not. They're, all of these court rulings are on the preliminary injunctions. They get awarded, they get you know they get stayed. They get awarded, they get stayed. You know, so uh, the, the judge only gave them 24 hours to appeal. And right. no one knows whether the next court, which would be the appellate court, will take an emergency appeal and stay the ruling, you know, for who knows how long. So right. 
Worst case scenario, he'll sit to six games, and Dallas will just have to deal with it. So that that's the side of the argument that I heard people discussing on the radio and on ESPN and others. Uh, so removing him personally from the situation, let's say either he knows he did it and he's going to fight it anyway, or he believes he's innocent and he's going to fight it. So removing those scenarios out of the equation and looking at the power the league has given Goodell through the CPA in order uh, to implement suspensions as he sees fit, that there's a thought, a school of thought out there that he's going to, he can appeal all he wants. Eventually he's going to have to serve this suspension. The idea or the argument, the discussion, I should say, that was being brought to the table was um, knowing that or in the mind that he's going to serve the suspension regardless, would it benefit his team for him not to appeal? No, so this no, no, versus no. Let me stop you right there. Having to serve it later in the season. No, it has nothing to do with his – it has nothing to do with – his employer, the Dallas Cowboys. This is a citizen trying to clear their name. It has nothing to do with the impact of him fighting, fighting, fighting may have on the team. This is bigger than that because when this guy retires, okay, there's still that label still going to be attached to him. Sure. So this is bigger than that. And so regardless of how it impacts a team, negative or positive, if he believes in his heart that he is innocent of these accusations in in the NFL world, and again, because he has not been charged and he was cleared in the societal world in terms of the criminal courts, et cetera, yep. but the NFL is saying, oh, well, we believe based on what we investigated that there's the process, it was more likely than not that something did happen because that's their burden, more likely than not. Right. And so, again, if it was me – it would, be, it would have nothing to do with what would benefit the team. Oh, take the suspension so we can get it over with and move on with the year, or it's better you take it now than at the end of the year when the games are more important. That has nothing to do with my name, my reputation, my integrity, etc. And he should fight right. to the death to clear his name until he can fight no more, regardless of when, if and when he ultimately has to serve the suspension because the courts are going to continue to rule against him because of the collective bargain agreement, at least you can say to your children, to your family, to your, clo- your loved ones, I fought until I could fight no more, and I was rebuffed and rebuffed and rebuffed by the courts. But they, you could say I fought and stand right. on that. But if you just say, oh, like everybody else on the sports talk shows are saying, oh, it's better for the Cowboys if he just serves the suspension and gets it over with, well, it's not your name. It's not your life. Right, right. For them, they're just looking at it from a sports team perspective rather than the person's actual life. When he finished playing football, he's still going to be tagged with that as, hey, you know, he was suspended by the NFL for domestic violence. It's not going to say, oh, it's not going to be prefaced with he was not charged, he was not found, you know, culpable, et cetera, et cetera, by two district attorneys in two different states cleared him, refused to charge him, blah, blah, blah. His, his, the league that he was you know, part of did their own investigation and said, oh, we think that something did happen. Right. And so we're right. going to use the power that we have vested in our agreement between you, a player, and us, the league, to issue out discipline. 
So yeah, I agree. I have to. I, I agree with that take. I agree with that take. So uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. You said that they gave him 24 hours to appeal this latest decision. Yeah. 24 hours. It's very difficult to find an appellate court that will issue an emergency stay. Because um, you, you would have to prove that you are going to succeed, that you, the chances of you succeeding on your appeal are more likely than not. Now, he's still going to probably okay. proceed, and he should, even if no court is going to intervene to, del- to stop the suspension. He should still fight it, even if he has to serve the six games. Your name is still worth fighting to clear. Now, how will he get that money back? I have no idea. How will he get those games back? I have no idea. I don't know how that works. I don't know if there if that can I don't know of any venue vehicle for that to happen. So, but you should still try and clear your name. I'll leave it at that. Okay. I agree. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh so we'll move on because I know we've got a lot of things to discuss on the show here. Uh trade deadline. Uh, We had the trade deadline, and for those folks, obviously, if you're a sports fan, obviously, if you're a sports fan or an NFL fan, uh, you are um, well aware of the trade deadline and the idea that in the NFL, uh, it's very rare that you get any kind of blockbuster move. Typically, NFL trades aren't very big, don't happen very often, and that's because uh, Every team, it's not like basketball where you can, you know, maybe there's a couple plays to learn, but you can just go and play the game. The NFL is very nuanced. Every team runs a different language, a different system. And so uh, big-time trades don't don't typically happen uh, for right. those folks out there. But this year we, uh, we had one that I guess uh, the host has said he wanted to comment on that people have labeled a blockbuster. That involves our very own, and I say our speaking to me and the listeners out there from our direct area, our home team, the San Francisco 49ers. Sir, you want to let them know what happened and give your thoughts before I give mine? The New England Patriots traded their backup quarterback, Jimmy G. I can't pronounce his last name, so I'll just call him Jimmy G. Garoppolo. Uh, Garoppolo. uh, Okay, whatever. To the 49ers. Um, for what was it, the second round pick? That's draft, correct. Next year's draft. Okay. So I only have two comments. One is I, I don't understand New England's thinking in terms of the timing. They could have just traded him in the off season. Um, if they were gonna if they were gonna move him, unless they just wanted to see how Brady was going to play, and if he looked like he had anything left for for the next year or two. Not not including this year, but if he looked good enough that they could say, hmm, he might have a year or two left. Um, I'm more interested from their perspective, who's going to be their backup? Because a a 40-year-old quarterback, I don't care how good he is, a lot of stuff can happen. All it takes is the right hit in the back, and you're done. So, yeah. Now, so the Niners got themselves. You guys think you got yourself your quarterback? Are you asking me to speak on – perspective of myself as a fan or what the front office is saying i'm talking to you as a fan uh i say it's much too early to say on that uh you cannot 
judge somebody based on two starts uh, in the NFL. That said, um, I believe he's got all the makings. I mean, you okay. hold a clip, you hold a clipboard behind, you know, arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, uh, under arguably one of the greatest head coaches of all time, for four years. Uh, you've certainly been groomed by the right people. Uh, folks in Patriots camp are saying that you know they believed him to be good. To speak to your point as to why they didn't wait. Uh, or why they didn't do this in the off season? Uh, that's a good question. I think, I think what you said about maybe they wanted to hold on to him to see how Brady was going to perform this late uh, in his career uh, played a factor. Um, and then obviously they wanted to make the trade happen now because they knew they'd lose him this upcoming off season because he was scheduled to be a free agent. They weren't going to be able to pay him what it was going to take to keep him with what they owe Brady. Um, so that's why the Patriots had to pull the trigger now, as far as who their backup is going to be. And people say, this is just the, the smarts or the brain trust back in new England is they, uh, they made the right move trading them to the Niners. Cause they knew the Niners would have to make a corresponding roster move, which we did, which was to cut Brian Hoyer. And so everybody's saying Brian Hoyer is most likely going to be a Patriot within the next 48 hours, which He's been a Patriot as a backup yeah. uh, under Bill Belichick, so everyone's saying it's just going to go right back to them. So can I can I wrap this up real quick just by saying that um, everybody that has backed up Brady and gone elsewhere, oh terrible, it's been a different world, which has uh, proven absolutely. that <laughs> it, their system makes quarterbacks. Possibly, I'm not saying about Brady, look better than they are, but we will see because he's coming to a team that doesn't have the same weapons and doesn't have the same, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we shall see. All right, let's move. Let's move along. I think it's important to let our audience know today, our listening audience know that uh, I am uh, uh, broadcasting from the home studio today. Um, sitting next to me in the home studio is. Uh, the uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback. Tell if she's uh, giving me the the corner of the eye look, or if she's actually got her eye closed. Uh, but right <laughs> now she's uh, she's quiet and uh, lying on her bed. But if uh, y'all hear any noise in the background, if y'all hear any screaming and hollering, that means I'm being attacked. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'll know what it is. We'll know what it is. Or if in a, a in about 45 minutes y'all hear a lot of background noise, it means the boys are home. The, the the noise decibel goes up greatly when they enter the front door. So I'll have no okay. control over the of the uh the sound effects. All right. All right, that's all right. Um we had a graduation this month. We try and do one uh every couple of years. I'm not sure how we got on to the odd years because for a while we were on the even years and I guess we must have missed a year um, and somehow got on the odd years. But uh, we had 12 12 graduates, which is pretty good. Um, I think seven were able to make the uh, ceremony. Um, But 12 is a very, it's a, and 
I, I don't even remember there going to a graduation in New York and seeing 12, even though there may have been more, you know, in that class, but in terms right, of right. showing up. Um, <clears throat> but graduation ceremonies are very uh, special. And some of the feedback that I've received, um, which I was very, it was very rewarding to hear um, just professionally, because this is what you want to hear and want to happen um, and be the experience from a graduation is what the current clients experienced in seeing the graduation. Yep. The graduates, of course, are the center of attention and um, obviously deserve to be um, and made to be. But there's also a carom shot <laughs> uh, that we're trying to do to, for the current clients uh, uh, who are, you know, ranging from day one all the way to people who are on their way to becoming graduates. Um, and them seeing that it can be done, that this is not some pie in the sky and one of those fake diplomas that you guys yeah, have on right. the wall. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Who the hell really completes treatment? Um, it's too hard. No way it can be done. And so it's important for them to see that, nope, there are real people who actually are, you know, not only moving on with their lives, but continuing to go through the process at various stages in their own time and have made the decision that's important to them because we have a lot of people who complete the program and just for their own personal choices, they might leave the state or whatever, you know, whatever. Um, they just, they don't choose to pursue graduation, which is absolutely right. fine. I know many people both here and, you know, back in the day in New York who completed just, that was it. They moved on with their lives and what have you. Um, can I interject there and just ask yeah. you real quickly? Because I recall, uh, you know, back in back in the day, uh, where people used to get confronted about making the decision not to see the program all the way through and graduate the program and just get to phase four and leave, and there was like a almost like a negative kind of connotation that came with being one of the folks who. Um, you know, would get to phase four, which it was phase four back in the day, and then not actually uh, see their see their stay all the way through to graduation. Yeah, I think um, that was one of the things um, in Daytop that um, I wasn't a fan of. It was it, <laughs> it kind of reminded me of the uh, the um, the community. What are they called? In Pennsylvania, oh, the Amish. Yeah, the Amish, where they do the shunning. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, right. you're shunned, and so you know, the yeah, people, yeah. Like, you, if you split the program, you were shunned, or if you if you didn't graduate, you were shunned, and so on and so forth. And I know many people who split and went on to be, you know, succeed and stay clean and and succeed in their life in their life. You know what I mean? Um, and Many people who, like I was saying, who, you know, out, I think back in, in the daytime world, their, 
there really wasn't quote unquote a completion thing. The completion really was with graduating. Right. Um, right. Okay. We've kind of made a distinction that someone can complete all of the necessary, you know, phases of treatment, um, receive their completion certificate that they've successfully completed treatment, um, and they choose to just go on with their lives. They don't choose to graduate, which involves, you know, like a final couple of things that we ask them to do, et cetera. But <clears throat> yeah, there used to be some shunning. Um, but uh, you know we've grown, we've matured, we've gotten away from that. <laughs> we've got <laughs> we've gotten away from that as as well that we should. Um, and that's not to say because one of the things that I think that we do is, or at least now we're kind of hands off. We allow the peers to kind of decide amongst themselves, and if they want to hold each other accountable for not seeing it all the way through, that's all fair game. And of well course, and good. yeah. We, you know, as a staff, we're not going to do that because, right. You know, we understand. You know, you know, look how many people have moved moved away. You know, moved to yeah, other states and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, it's absolutely. First of all, it's enjoyable to hear that it still happens that you know people are holding each other to the to the highest standard and, and confronting them and uh, why you know why aren't you taking the next step? What's stopping you? Why you know and, and making them account? Right, and, right. And you know and their accountability can be 100% valid and legitimate and, and whatever. But just the fact that they're being held to account to me is 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 a beautiful thing. But um. The ceremony itself, um, like we said, you know, serves serves that dual purpose to not only honor those who have made that sacrifice and seen it all the way through to the uh, to the to the ultimate end, but those who are just starting out, you know, sitting in that front row and say, seeing, you know, it's not just a uh, some unattainable dream or you know. Or unattainable goal that no real live people are achieving it, so it's doable. And it was nice to hear the feedback that that's the impact that it had on many of the current clients that hear the graduates speak, um, and you know tell a little bit of their story and 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 how they feel about themselves where they are today in their lives was important. And we the one thing that we did differently this time around, you know, we're always trying to tweak things and try new things. We didn't have a keynote speaker. What we had was a graduate speak and just have what we called a graduate to graduate message. Um and that was very powerful. Um and and I think you know this year was one of the grad uh, person who graduated as an adolescent. Right, you know, who's who's now a grown woman with children, you know, but you know, to come back and give the message to the graduates and the clients, I thought was pretty powerful. I thought so too, and obviously, I received um, working in the belly of the beast, as you've so aptly named it. I received a lot of that feedback directly about how cool it was and how motivating it was to see a graduation ceremony and see these graduates speak, and on top of that. I think there's an extra layer or an extra dimension added to the graduate speaker, as you mentioned, who was a graduate of the adolescent facility who has now grown with children because 
to me, it it adds a little extra spice, the idea that this is not a fresh graduate speaking, not that there's anything, you know, hey, if you're a graduate, you've earned it, not that there's anything taken away from you for that. But somebody who hasn't just been away from the program for two years and is coming back to speak as a graduate, but someone who graduated, you know, over a decade, decades ago, Mm-hmm. And who, you know, just speaks to the longevity that look, oh, you, you know, because we have many clients, you know, these are adults that we work with who have graduated from programs and gone on to be staff at those programs and maybe five years into it, they experience a setback. And right. so we're talking about somebody who graduated, who's now been doing it for 10, 20 years. Um, I think it just adds a little extra layer, you know, that right. that element. So, um, yeah, no, it was definitely awesome. Um, one of the other things that we did, um, we gave an honorary graduation diploma to Deborah Budessa, who obviously some of our listeners will not know. Who, who the hell is Deborah Budessa? Right. Um, well, let me first interject and say that she didn't get an honorary OCG, Our Common Ground graduation diploma, she got an honorary Daytop graduation diploma. Um, Because as you know, um, but our audience doesn't obviously, she was one of the first two teachers of the Daytop school back in 1988. And we had honored Allison prior to her passing um, a few years ago. Um, She was the founder of the school um, and gave her, because they they lived, slept, and ate Daytop. Um, And one of the reasons why we wanted to honor Deborah is because it was really honoring how fortunate that we have been as a program that we got so lucky to get those two teachers because it could have been two other teachers who would have said, you know, let's say this is a school program business on the program side (laughs) and we can do the school business. Yeah, exactly. And they were like fully incorporating at that time, of course, Daytop into their school program. Right. I mean, everything, pull-ups, holding people accountable. I mean, the whole nine yards. So there was, whether they went to school or they were on the, the facility side, it was like, there was no difference. And that was all them, that they bought into it, and, and they saw the value in using the principles and, what, and the, the core concepts that we used and incorporating it into the school. Um, and they were no joke. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of students later, um, you know, have benefited from that. And so we wanted to honor her. Um, and give her a day top because that's what she knew. That's what she loved, even though she did uh, transition with us under our common ground, even served on our board, et cetera. Um, but she really, really, A, loved the adolescence and B, um, absolutely loved day top. And so I thought it would be fitting if we honored her with an honorary graduation diploma. Yeah, I, that was a really, really cool moment too. And it looked like uh, – you uh, you got you you don't have any uh, front office leaks 
as they like to yeah, call it yeah, in the NFL. I, I, we were able to because she looked surprised by that. Yeah, so. yeah, she was. Yeah, we. I keep a very tight grip on the leaks. There's no leaks. <laughs> no inner office politics working right nope. there. Uh, nope, yeah, nope, that nope. was good. That was very good. I use the old Ed Norton philosophy: slip of the lip, sinks the ship. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, she looked uh, to be. Uh, very surprised by the information and also very, very touched by it. So that was definitely a uh, a classy move. And I have to give a shout out to uh, my executive assistant, Elizabeth, because she's the one that had to do all of the shenanigans really behind the scenes to get to, to make sure, because Debbie always likes to attend the graduation ceremonies anyway, uh, but to make sure she was attending this one. <laughs> right, without right, right. tipping our hand, you know, we couldn't want to say, Debbie, can you make sure you really attend this one versus, you know, just letting her know, hey, we're having a graduation. We'd like you to, you know, like to see you come as you always do. Um, right. But to then make sure that she comes, you know what I mean? So, and yes. it was a, it was a very close call. I have to add, because all that was going on the week prior with the fires that we were experiencing here in Northern California mm-hmm. and, you know, the people that were being impacted, staff, board members, friends of our OCG. Um, and so, and even though we decided to press on and go forth with the graduation, we, we, you know, there were a couple of presentations we didn't do because people weren't able to attend because they were in that fire zone. And so obviously life takes precedent. Um, And we weren't sure if, you know, Debbie was going to be affected by that, but, you know, fortunately she wasn't and she, you know, confirmed that she was still going to come. So we went forward with it. That is, that's awesome. So it worked, it worked out and you were able to keep it. uh, Nobody, nobody was the wiser. No, we didn't have to uh, prosecute anyone for, for leaks. (laughs) <laughs> Good. So um, The other thing that we celebrated On that day of course was our 10th anniversary As our common ground And Again we did something different And you know You've, you've been to each Anniversary celebration That we've had <clears throat> And in years past, it's, I think it's only been the last two graduations, this one and the one in 2015, that we combined the anniversary and the graduation. And then in the off year, we just did, obviously, the, uh, the annual anniversary celebration. Right. Um, but this year, of course, being the 10th anniversary, um, we wanted to do something different which I asked you to facilitate, which was kind of really giving the true Hollywood story, if you will, of um, how our common ground came into being and from daytop to our common ground and, and how that, how nip and tuck it was. Yeah. Right. <laughs> to actually right, make right this thing happen. The, that's right. <laughs> Couldn't get any closer. Not even the final the the final seconds of regulation, like the final seconds of overtime. Mm-hmm. And there, you gave a very deep, detailed account all the way down to the last second. But there was one thing, you know, days afterwards, I realized um, that I didn't um, add to what you spoke about. 
um, which was, and it was a moment of, uh, for lack of a better expression, let's just call it panic <laughs> for me. Okay. So you know how the day was August 24th. So that's the day that we met in San Carlos. We had Steve Winston on conference call of calling from New York. <clears throat> that's the day we did the legal transfer of the property the exchange of the intellectual property, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But so that was a Friday that Wednesday. Prior to that, maybe a week. I'm sorry. If you recall, obviously we did a contest to come up with the name, our common ground. And once we chose the name, um, I had to let the attorney know, Hey, this is the name we're going to change to blah, blah, blah. And, of course, we had to go on the Secretary of State's website to confirm that the name was available, which it was. Well, that oh, Wednesday, I think I remember this part of yeah. the story. I'll let you tell it to the audience, <laughs> but I think I remember this part of the story. That Wednesday, I went online to, to officially purchase the name because, you remember, you, you can't purchase the name unless you have a filing, a Secretary of State's filing. Right. And because right. it's a corporation, you know, there's a certain process you have to go through. So I wanted to now initiate the process, grab the name, pay, pay the filing fee, knowing that in the next 48 hours, we were going to then submit the documents and request the legal change of name from Daytime, California to Our Common Ground. I went online and typed in the name and everything, and it said taken. I said, wait a second, let me spell it. Uh, maybe I missed Yeah. It kept coming up as taken. I'm like, wait a second now. That's absolutely impossible. Now, there was a, there is a company that exists that's called Our Common Ground, but they're private, and I don't even know if they're still around, but it was some kind of a newspaper in Los Angeles. But we were going to be Our Common Ground, Inc., which is different. Right. Okay. And kind of most nonprofits have the Inc., inc in which means incorporated. I then just typed in Our Common Ground. That company came up. I typed in Our Common Ground, Inc., without the comma and just the period, and still said taken. I'm like, I can't believe this. <laughs> We're less than 48 hours away and this is the name that we cho- all this is the name that's on all the legal documents and someone went someone has in in less than 7 days taken the name yeah and it tells you on there who took you know who has taken the name and it just said cone sacramento address so i get on the phone and i call the attorney and you know i'm kind of now i'm like you know what are we going to do now so i call the attorney and I said Listen, I just went on the Secretary of State's website, and uh, someone took the damn name. And he said, no, no, <laughs> "Now no, we no, got to no. track down who the hell this damn cone is yeah, in Sacramento." He, exactly. And he said, "No, no, that was me." <laughs> oh man! Lawyers being lawyers, he beat me to it and snatched it up, and it was reserved under their their full legal name. The name of the firm is Aronson Dickerson Cone. I only know them as Aronson Dickerson. Yeah, yeah. And so it said Cone and Sacramento, and they have a P.O. box in Sacramento for when they do business like this at the state level. 
And so I was like, and his and our, the attorney's name is Greg Rubens. So I was like, Greg, you almost gave me a heart attack. <laughs> and I said, and you know they're fatal at my age. And then, how old was I? It was ten years ago, so I was in my forties. Um, and he said, yeah, you know, I took, you know, once you told me what the name was, I just went on there and, and grabbed it and, and got it ready for the filings and blah blah blah. And he never told me. Just follow, just doing his due diligence just, as a good yeah, attorney. Just, exactly. So that was the scare before the <laughs> before the deed was done. Holy smokes! But yeah, so we kind of told that you know w- without this little small story, told the uh, the true Hollywood story of of everything that kind of transpired um, that that on all the steps in between and before that date that had everything culminating on that Friday, August 24th, 2007. Um, which I think people found uh, interesting hearing all of the, uh, the dirty details of how things were turning left and right and, you know, nip and tuck and is it going to happen? It's not going to happen. You know, are they going to make it, not make it? So, all of those things that were going on behind the scenes while while we still had to operate a program. Yeah, right. I Even mean, I was those working during going, that time. And that was the whole thing. And that was my whole message at that time was <clears throat> everyone just everyone has to just do what they do and you know, all the other stuff that's going on behind the scenes has to just go on, but we still got people to serve, a program to run, um, et cetera. And at that time, a school to operate and all, you know, all everything, despite every, all the nip and tuck and drama and intrigue going on behind the scenes. And you did a you did a really good job of that, too, because I, I remember speaking from a staff's perf- perspective, somebody on the floor um, you know, there was obviously some concern about, you know, hey, our, you know, job security or what's going to happen with work and, you know, how, mm-hmm. how in jeopardy are we as a program? And so you had to kind of alleviate all that, uh, you know, with just the message that, hey, you know what, I, I think what you told me that stuck with me that I'll never uh, forget to this day, in fact, was um, you said, you know, like, Every essentially everybody has a role within this organization, and we all have a, a specific job to do. And it is not your job or, or anybody on the floor's job to worry about what happens behind the scenes and the finances. Your job is to worry about what is in your job description and what you have to do. And uh, you let people who are paid to worry about these things worry about those things. And I just kind of remember that stuck with me, but it rang so true that you know what, like. Everybody has a role within the organization, and people get paid to do whatever it is uh, their role is. And so you just continue to focus on what it is you're being asked to do, right. and then you can, uh, you know, you can allow the folks who get paid to worry about the other things worry about the other things. And so it just kind of gave us, you know, assurance on the floor. Well, a obviously. Uh, it's being looked at, right? Like people are, people are not just going to allow us to sink and, and not be thinking about those things, but that those who are put in the position to worry about those things can do that. And and we don't have to worry about that. And uh, I think, you know, that, that helped out a lot 
just, uh, you know what, somebody else has got this process, and we're just going to continue to do what it is we have to do. And it works, excuse me, it works both ways because, for example, someone that's in my role has to have trust, confidence, and security that other people in other roles are doing what they have to do to continue to facilitate the running of the program while other people are doing other things. Right. So um, there has to be a mutual trust, mutual confidence that, okay, the executive director is taking care of to the best that he can what he has to do. The, the director is doing the best that she can do. You know, every, everyone has to do what they can do to the best that they can, and we have to have trust and confidence that they're going to do that. Right. Um, one of the <laughs> One of the things I used to get asked during that period a lot uh, by some of the board members and others was, you know, are you sleeping? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sure. I can imagine. I slept slept like a baby. Yeah. I never lost any sleep whatsoever. I have no idea why not, but I, I had no problem sleeping. Now I do for reasons unrelated to anything, but maybe that's because of all the damn noise. Now, yeah, by the way, right. let me sure. let our audience know that uh, Sheba, that's my dog's name, has just woke up. So she is a whiner, W-H-I-N-E-R. She she yeah. whines. So you will hear the whining in the background. Yeah, I think we heard a little. Uh, it sounded to me like a yawn anyway. but Yeah, well, she's giving me the, the eyes right now. And so I'm just <laughs> not going to. I'm not even going to look at her because then she'll just start. So... But yeah, no, I guess I guess you're right. Huh? The trust that everybody had to have in everybody else as a team because uh, worrying about everything that could have been worried about at that time would have been far too much for a person in one position to handle. Right. Worrying about the floor and the finances and employee morale and just let everybody do what it is they got to do in their own position. Yep. All right. Next topic. We're doing multi-topic today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what's in the news nationally, and that's the opioid crisis. That's right. Mr. Donald Trump announced it, huh? So I have some comments, and I'll be interested in knowing, hearing your comments, of course. Um, and my comments, are, my comments are all over the place because I think and feel differently about it. Um, we touched on this, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. I'll have to look in the archives to see. We didn't do a specific show, but I know just in talking, we touched on this. And one of the things I see... Um, in some of the groups on social media, people have a, a range of thoughts and emotions re- in regards to this issue, in regards to the national dialogue, in regards to you know what the president is saying or not saying, etc. And one of the things I'm going to do is also I'm, I'm bringing up now um, some comments from Daytop, New Jersey, uh, Jimmy Curtin. I don't know if you remember him. No, uh, okay. Um, he's the CEO of Daytop New Jersey. Um, Jimmy and okay. I go way back. 
Um, I'm going to read some of his comments, but, you know, some people are speaking truth. Some people are speaking truth to power. Some people are being incendiary. Some people are being inflammatory. Um, some people are, uh, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying what people are, are saying or doing. Some people are injecting uh, race um, into it, um, etc. So some of the things I think are truth and truth to power. Uh, term opioid crisis. The only time I hear that that those words, a phrase in that language, is when it's being talked about in communities other than inner cities, low-income communities. Because what we know it is is just a heroin problem. Right, okay? right. But because, and this is my, my own speculation – because it's not just heroin, because it's uh, synthetic opiates, um, i.e. prescription, i.e. fentanyl, i.e. methadone, i.e. whatever people can get their hands on that's not the real deal, um, are also now mixed into the fray um, and are also now part of what in various geographic locations people are you know, um, ODing on, etc., it's this generic term. And some people have a visceral reaction to it because two years ago, you and I commented on this and we're like, you know, you know, when you say to crisis, what are you saying? Because right now, you know, on the Eastern seaboard that, you know, that's a lot of the talk is, is about that. How much of that is the talk in the, in the West, in the Midwest? I mean, out here, I mean, I hear about it nationally, but do you hear about it? You know, here in California, Oregon, Washington, et cetera, that this is the number one thing? Because as far as I know, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're still dealing with a methamphetamine issue out here. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and so I don't know if it's because it's on the East Coast and it's, you know, close to Washington, D.C. and, you know, et cetera. And a lot of communities along that eastern seaboard that are being hit that really weren't, you know, communities that that would put it this way, communities in the past that would escape this kind of thing. But okay, I see what you're saying. It's still happening in the hood. It's still happening in in, in other low income areas and in big inner cities. It's you know, um, people use whatever they can get their hands on. Um, so, you know, part of me is like, um, okay, it it may have reached, reached my hands are in air quotes now, crisis proportion, but I'm really wondering, okay, since this is what's really making the news, what people are talking about it on the national level, is that going to throw people who are having trouble with alcohol, people having trouble with methamphetamine, people having trouble with cocaine and crack, is that going to throw them kind of under the bus? where that's no longer important or that's not making as much quote unquote noise as the opioid crisis is making. I'm just saying. Okay. I can, I mean, I can see that angle. Yeah. 
They can see that perspective. And that also ties into why some people, not all, but some people are having a visceral reaction to it racially because they think that this, you know, big deal that's being made of it is only being made of it now because of the communities that it's now impacting. Whereas when it has impacted other communities for many years, um, there wasn't such a hue and cry about it. Now, I do take one issue with that in this way. Someone wrote a very long post, a relative of mine, I should say, and I said to them, you have your facts wrong. Not all the facts, some of the facts were wrong in terms of speaking to it from a racial perspective because I recall back in the 80s and back in the early 90s, when it was the quote-unquote crack epidemic, okay, mm-hmm. back in New York and other communities, <clears throat> and they say, well, there was no hue and cry. There was no talk about you know, funneling you know, money in for treatment. That's not true. And it's, and it's interesting how time clouds people's memories. There was a big hue and cry. There was a tremendous hue and cry during the crack epidemic. And there was a tremendous infusion of money into treatment. How do you think – where do you think the money for Daytop came from in terms of you know, the additional funding and so on and so forth from, from – uh, what was it called that t- back then in New York? OSAS. I don't know what it's called right now, but okay. the o- Office of Substance Abuse Services or something like that. Um, they were injecting a lot of money into the system to deal with the crack epidemic in, in New York. However – and this is a little small caveat. <clears throat> One of the things that happened, which is not happening now, is all the talk now, and this is what's kind of rubbing people the wrong way, is about treatment, 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 getting money into the system for treatment, 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 prevention, and all the other things. But back then, during the crack ec- epidemic, they also pushed it hard from the criminal justice side going after the crack dealers and so on and so forth and really hitting them hard with, you know, just, you know, tremendous prison sentences and so on, so on, so on. Right. So they said it wasn't all about treatment. Not all the talk was about treatment. Not all the money was about treatment. They were also going from it from a law enforcement side. Fair enough. However, this is a big, however, and this is my big pet peeve when this issue always comes up, is that the people who were pushing the law enforcement side was the Congressional Black Caucus. Say that they again. Were the, the people who were pushing the law enforcement side, not the treatment side, the law enforcement side. We need to get these dealers off the street. These dealers need to feel the impact of what they're doing to our communities. They're the one who pushed, co-sponsored, sponsored legislation, okay, to issue the harsh sentences for people who were peddling crack cocaine in those communities. Okay, yep. They, they did, their voices were not significantly about pushing money into treatment. And so when this comes up, I always say, listen – 
oftentimes you don't learn until you try something and say, oh, you know what? That was an unintended consequence. That's not what we wanted to happen. We, we, you know, we, we didn't know what to do, and so we thought that this would be the right thing to do. But it turns out in hindsight, it was too much collateral damage in terms of you know, how people were impacted from the criminal justice perspective. Mm-hmm. But that's what I want to hear them say. Right, right. I want to hear you say, we made a mistake. We should have never pushed that hard for lock them up. We should have said, we understand that there's a law enforcement element to this, but there are way more people being impacted that need treatment. And that's where the bulk of the money should go. 80-20, 90-10, 75-25, certainly not 50-50. And so when this comes up, and people talk about the quote-unquote racial disparity now that, hey, just because it's hitting communities in New Hampshire, communities in Vermont, communities in Rhode Island, communities in Connecticut, et cetera, et cetera, now it's a crisis, and now everybody wants to talk about putting money into treatment for this. What about back in the day when there was a heroin crisis, which there still is, and there was a crack epidemic, which there still is? Well, you need to know who the people were that pushed for all this criminal justice stuff, and they need to stand up and say, raise their hand and cop and say, you know what? We were wrong. We didn't know any better, but now that we see the results of what we did, we want to do something different this time. That's what I need to hear. So I'm off my soapbox. I agree. I agree with a lot of the points you made. The only thing I would add or – you know, and at least this is just this is my belief. You know, I could be I could be wrong as to why they're addressing this the way they are. Um, but one thing that I think is very different now than any time anybody deemed uh, in, in our recent history some sort of epidemic as far as drugs on the street were concerned, or a particular type of drug, is um, all the pharmaceutical medication. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, I think, you know, obviously we're, we're talking about uh, opiate, opiate uh, crisis, opiate epidemic. And I think that nowadays with all of the um, prescription medications on the street, all of the pills, and I think I even watched them on Fox News talk about um, just the amount of prescriptions that are being written by doctors, the amount of scripts that are being written by doctors for opiate medication. Um, has gone through the roof, and then, uh, well, I guess I should ask who might be listening to this show or whoever may be listening to this show. Uh, I don't know if we're being recorded or tapped, and I don't want anyone knocking at my door in the middle of the night with a black van parked outside. Uh, But just the the money, the money involved. And I remember you and I had a conversation, uh, and this is slightly off topic, but under the same umbrella, just about the difference between Western medicine and Eastern medicine or how medicine is practiced in other parts of the world, generally speaking. Uh, And I won't get into too many details of our conversation, but I believe it was prostate cancer was the topic of conversation um, and how that's dealt with here in the U S versus how that might be dealt with. in.
Mr. Producer, I don't know if you can hear me, but I can't hear you. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, what did you do? Good. Did you hit your mic button? Uh, the mic button must have been hit somehow. It's not even close to me, but uh, but it must have been hit somehow. Um, okay. where, where did I lose you? Uh, Jamaica, how prostate cancer might be dealt with in Jamaica. The last thing I heard was Japan or Jamaica. I don't know if we were starting to Jamaica. say Jamaica or – Okay. Yeah, 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 Jamaica, and we were talking about how prostate cancer might be dealt with or the treatment might be approached in Jamaica versus here in the U.S. or other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And the idea that there's a lot of money involved with all of these drugs that are sitting on, you know, in these rooms, in these facilities, in these hospitals from the floor to the ceiling, uh, and how, you know, I mean, it, it's not, you know, you're not saying anything earth shattering to say there's just an awful lot of money involved. And, um,. Uh, <laughs> So when we're talking about the opiate crisis and how doctors are writing prescriptions uh, nonstop for opiates, um, I'm actually kind of glad that they're that they're uh, taking out their magnifying glass on this. And and who knows why or to what angle they're going to be approaching it from. Uh, but I do believe that uh, you know they're they're pushing out prescriptions almost faster than they can be filled at this point. And I do believe typically when you follow the trail of money, you get some answers. They're definitely, and they're definitely making it out onto the, uh, the black market, obviously um, in some way, shape or form. I mean, when a drug company spends 15, $20 billion to create something, they're damn well going to get their money back. <laughs> right, 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 right. Shape or form. Um, but here's the thing. Um, we knew about this 30 years ago. We were saying that we, we used to always start a conversation by saying, okay, first things first. There are more people addicted to prescription medication in this country than illegal drugs. That was 30 years ago. Yep. I would say that. Okay. Now, okay. the difference back then, obviously, is that the use of it, i.e. Um, illicitly on the street wasn't as prevalent, and then obviously the use of it even licitly, and, and like you said, the, the number of scripts has exploded. Um, is has, That's a major change. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, you know, people who uh, who are, let's say, aren't in the industry, aren't in the field, but are, are just reacting to you know, you know, the amount of attention being paid to this versus, you know, other things are, you know, we don't care. And right. not that they don't care. They not, And I'm going to say this, and I, I know it's going to sound funny, not that they don't care, but they don't care. You know, if your family member is struggling with alcohol, you don't care about that other thing. And so what becomes of national importance um it does not necessarily uh, jive with what's important on the ground for a particular community. <clears throat> Very true. I agree mean, with that. And that doesn't mean in the communities that are being just decimated by uh, opioids that it's not important to those communities. It absolutely is because that's what they're being decimated by. But a community that's being decimated by methamphetamine or regular and here, here we are now saying regular, regular heroin, like it's regular gas versus super unleaded. 
Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, that distinction is having to be made now, right? Because and I think you mentioned it at the beginning of all this because they're saying a lot of um, heroin you find on the streets now is being uh, cut or laced with fentanyl. Which you mentioned, and that's why a lot of people are, uh, or you know, you see a lot of overdoses with that. Yeah. So I think we are a little bit past the top of the hour, and that's okay. Um, some other things I want to talk about, but I can't remember what they are. As usual, I didn't write them down. Um, <laughs> but why don't we take a quick break? top of the hour break um i'll go let uh sheba out to use the bathroom and we'll go. come back and uh we'll continue in one way shape or form that's right okay sounds good to me we do see we've got some callers on hold uh we appreciate your patience uh your patience and your desire to call in and participate in the show uh we are going to take a music break as the host just alluded to and we will get to everybody on the other side at some point The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted.
on recovery. I'm now rejoined by the dog. All right, settle down now. (laughs) You'll definitely hear her now in the background. Um, I wanted to give our listeners a comparison because we've talked about um, what's been talked about today with the opioid crisis and crisis crises of yesteryear. That's um, right. And I mentioned how I want those who through either lack of education, fear or what have you, went about dealing with the crisis, which and, and what turned out to be not the smartest way. Uh, maybe they thought that was the only way, but it wasn't the smartest way. It's certainly not the way that they're looking to deal with this current crisis, um, which is try and make uh, treatment more readily available to people. But one of the uh, things that came out of the old way was the very tough sentencing laws. So, for example, if uh, two dealers got caught with an equal amount, let's say, uh, an ounce of crack cocaine and an ounce of quote-unquote regular cocaine, the guy dealing the cocaine might get five years and the guy dealing the crack cocaine may get 10 to 12 years, even though it's the same amount, right, in terms of weight. Um, So that's the kind of craziness that they were doing. That's equivalent to, and I'm going to use your your culture, Mr. Producer, as uh, my analogy. All right. That's equivalent to giving someone who is eating the, who has the burrito 12 years, but the person who has the tortilla, the tomatoes, the little, the ground beef, and all the stuff that goes into the burrito, giving them five years. Just because they bought all the things to to make the burrito, but they don't have the burrito made yet, they get less time. But the person who cooked it up and has the fully made burrito gets 12 years. That's what right, goes with right, crack right. cocaine. Because even people who bought regular cocaine just went home and did the same thing, cooked it up, and to make it into crack cocaine. So I was like, really? So there are people that are still in prison because of these crazy sentencing laws. So they're trying to do some reform now, which they've been pushing for the last five years. I'm very shocked that it didn't get done with, with the previous president, uh, but hopefully it'll get done. Yeah, I'm not saying, it, I mean, all uh, um, reasonable folk would agree that those who peddle stuff like that should be punished, um, but one thing that was proven was that 
the stuff they came up with in terms of the sentencing was not a deterrent because the amount of money that these dealers were making was more of a draw than the deterrent was. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, risk reward uh Exactly. Ratio. They said the 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 reward was too high in com- for them. I mean, for me, if you threaten me with one day in jail, that that's too high of a risk. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that risk is far outweighed whatever reward might come. Exactly. But some were like, hey, I'll you know, I'll try I'll take it. Um and those that got caught up got sentenced very hard because it was uh mandatory sentencing. It wasn't discretionary. Um but that's fine. Um so that's like that's the comparison. Um let me read what Jimmy Curtin, his comments on this subject were. Um, he was being interviewed by a newspaper in New Jersey. And let's see here. This article says, informally declaring opioid abuse a national public health emergency. By the way, there's a difference between a uh, disaster or emergency declaration versus a public health declaration. Um, if you want money to flow, you do a emergency declaration. But yeah. they just made a public health declaration. Uh, let's see. They're talking to Governor Chris Christie. Nobody wants to hear from him. Okay, where do we get to Jimmy Curtin? Jimmy Curtin. James Curtin, President and Chief Executive of Daytop, New Jersey, the Mendham based treatment organization where Christie first got involved with drug abuse programs, said he is encouraged by the attention the president is paying to the problem and lauded the elements the president adopted from the Christie led commission, such as increased training for drug providers and pledging a crackdown on fentanyl. But at the same time, Curtin said he is bitterly disappointed that Thursday's announcement did not include giving Congress power to spend money on the crisis, but instead authorizes it to use existing funds. The state of New Jersey needs additional dollars from the federal government, and I would say every state needs additional money. Curtin added that the announcement on Thursday lacks specifics, which they always will, the practical, impl- the practical implication for what the president said today, I think the only honest answer is we don't know. Um, one of the concerns is that they don't want to have existing money supplanted and like re- diverted to, to diverted to, to the opiate crisis. Um, opiate, opioids, one and the same. Uh, they don't want the money diverted. So they want new money to come in that will be specifically to assist in that, which I can understand. Um, But an interesting thing that is going to happen is, you know, the waiver that California is operating under. Yeah. Okay. We talked about that one of our shows a couple of years ago. That's right. So currently, currently four states are operating under the waiver. And and the waiver, for people who don't know, just allows states to use Medicaid funds differently than how they are actually uh, allowed under federal law. 
And so the states granted a waiver to use it, um, and California is using it to pay for drug treatment, which is why people who are on Medi-Cal can now receive treatment um, for drug addiction. Um, but one of the things they talk about in this public health declaration is expediting the waiver process and opening it up to many more states um, and speeding up the process of getting the waivers approved so that Medicaid funds can be used. Um, and I think that's a good that's a good thing. It's a step in the right direction. But I agree with Jimmy that uh, well, you certainly don't want existing money to be, you know, like taken and moved over here because then what's going to, you know, you already, there's already a, like a finite amount of money. And if you take from one, you know, you're going to decimate one area just to shore up another area. It needs new money. We're always saying we need new money, new money, new money. <laughs> but always. So that's uh, Jimmy Curtin's, I call him Jimmy, but that's, says that's James the here. take. That's the take from Jimmy Curtin. His hot take, okay. From from New Jersey. And as the saying goes, we'll see what happens. That's right. You got we'll time. See. Time will tell. We'll see what happens. One of the big things that we're dealing with out here also is um, that's that's kind of ramping up and coming online of the different treatments. So we we've talked about this for um, alcohol abuse. Hasn't gone away, folks. It's still out there, um, and the one of the promising treatments, um, Suboxone, is being kind of not allowed to be used to its fullest extent because, and again, we talked about this on one of our shows, the doctors who are eligible to prescribe it have to receive a certain level of training. I don't know if it's an eight-hour day, two, two eight-hour days. I don't know what it is. All I know is it's, they got to receive some training. And, of course, not every doctor wants to go and take the training. So there are a limited number of doctors available who can prescribe, and each doctor is only allowed to prescribe to a certain number of patients. And so what does that cause? That causes a significant amount of, de- of demand which cannot be met because you have too few doctors. And so one of the things that happened after we did our show, if you recall, Mr. Producer, is there was an announcement made on the state level that they were opening it up now to nurse practitioners. That's right. I do remember talking about that. Yes, which they then did do, but there is still a significant shortage um, because not as many people that can be or not as many people that should be are are able to take advantage of this uh, this Suboxone. So that's that. So I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll hear more. Maybe there will be a emergency declaration coming down the pipe, and the areas that are hard hit by this opioid crisis will get. Um, it's similar to like if there's a hurricane or something. There's a disaster declaration. It opens up special funds from the federal government to help deal with that, and this would be the same thing. It was kind of almost like a sleight of hand that they did by declaring a public health crisis versus a public health, like an emergency. Emergency, right. Right, declaration, um, which doesn't open up the federal dollars. Um, It can only just says, hey, you can use existing money for that. 
Mm. Yeah, that that really helps. Right. Being sarcastic, sarcastic, of course. (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course. All right. Well, time will tell. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Who do we got? Who do we got? Oh, no, 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 no. Before we take any phone calls, we at least have to (laughs) drop the PSA. Uh, We don't want to be sued or held liable for anything that could happen. So we're just going to drop a quick little disclaimer for those callers, and then we'll get right to the phone call. Okay. Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Just kidding, just kidding on that. I just wanted, <laughs> wanted to cue the first beat real quick. But, yeah, we got to get the disclaimer out there. So we're ready to ride. Yep. All right, let's see. Who's been holding the longest? Uh, let's go to, it looks like it says John from Pacifica. Welcome to the show. No, it's Donald. Donald oh, Donald, okay. Hey. Yes, uh, I was wondering... Do you think 90 days is enough for recovery? Um, I'll give you two answers. One is depends, and two is historically, no. So the depends side is it depends what you mean by when you say is 90 days enough for recovery. If you mean that 90 days and that's it or 90 days and something else that that I can that I continue um that's different so do you want to be a little bit more clear on what you mean uh well do you think two years is a suffice amount of time for recovery When you talk about when you say recovery, are you talking about do you mean treatment or are you talking about just the process of me changing my life, moving on with my life, and doing something different with my life? The process in changing a person's life. Yeah, that can take somebody by the time like someone can the decision to commit to changing your life can happen instantly. The process. To get there can take some time for different people, depending on where they are at the moment in time when they make that decision. The time depend you know it's different for some people you know when by the time a year is done, they've changed their life around and now they're on a different road, and now it's just a matter of staying on that road for some people, it might take them two years to to turn that cruise ship around and get themselves heading in the right direction. But some people it might take six months to turn it around and get them in the right direction. So it, it really depends on the person, where they're at at the particular moment in time when they make that commitment that, hey, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to change my life. I want to stop using, et cetera. Okay. Okay, I see. And uh, how, how do you recommend to stay clean and sober? After you finish treatment, Mr. Producer, you want to start with that one, and I'll pick it up on the other on the 
the, after you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. The the question kind of broke up a little bit, but how much time do you expect to spend in treatment in order to stay clean? Was that the was that the question? No, I think bro, he said. Bro, um, again, you ask your question again. How, how do you recommend to stay clean and sober after treatment? After you finish after, treatment. After treatment, okay. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the first things first is. However it is you got treatment or whatever it is um, you did to get you there is remembering where you came from and applying all the tools that you've gathered along the way. Uh, I think um, one one big mistake a lot of people tend to make is uh, forgetting, you know, where they came from day one, the whole process, all the time and energy and effort that they've put in. Um, you start to lose focus and you start to lose your grounding a little bit, then that's usually a recipe for disaster. Uh, we could cite statistics and research. Uh, old environment tends to be a huge predictor of relapse, going back to the same people and the same things. Um, relationships can also be a very, very big predictor in relapse. We've actually talked about that on the show a lot. But I'd say as far as staying clean and sober after leaving treatment, uh, just applying all the tools that you've gathered and having the confidence in yourself to say, you know what, you have uh, put in the work necessary to go out there and, and you are worth living a better life. And so now it's time to, to apply everything that you've learned. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, I just I just thank you guys for your show. This is the first time I ever uh, listened in on you. But uh, you guys got a wide range of topics, and uh, I'll be listening. Appreciate it. Great. Great. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Good stuff. All right. Let's go to – I can't see the beginning of the name on my screen, but all I can see is from Texas. Okay. AJ. AJ. AJ from Texas, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yep. So my question is, now that I'm in recovery, how do I get a friend in recovery? In recovery. What do you mean? So now that I've changed my life around and I'm in recovery, how can I get? How can I? get my friend into recovery or treatment. So you're saying you have a friend that it, it from from your perspective is also in need of recovery and you want to know how you can get them in? Yes. Are they resistant to to treatment? Is that the difficulty? Uh somewhat, yes. Well, ultimately there is nothing you can do to make, force, cajole another person into deciding that they're ready to get their life back in order and stop using. Right. Well, yeah. I that, mean, yeah however, I mean, it it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you don't continue to try. You don't continue to cajole. You don't continue to be supportive in a responsible way. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't stop doing that because you never know, you know, which talk, which day, you never know when that moment's going to be that 
they're ready and it's because you just never gave up. You just kept pushing, you kept pushing, you kept pushing, you kept pushing. And finally, for whatever reason, one particular time, it hit home and they said, yeah, I got to do go do this. Right. Oh, I understand. Uh, because my friend sees that my life is starting to change around, so I'm trying to figure out how I can get him into recovery as well. He's got to want it. He's got to want you know. it. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no practical, you know, issue with people getting into recovery, um, especially if they live in California, um, and not too much logistical if they're in a big, close to a big city, but. The main thing is if they if they they have to you know have a desire to get recovery and if they have that desire they they can find a place to go to get started. Okay, that's all. Yeah, I was just trying to figure out like I just had a you know the show is very interesting. This is my first time on the show and I was just curious to know like how I could get one of my friends into recovery or into treatment. Okay. Good uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's all I have. Thank you so much for your time. All right, you're welcome. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I think we've all been there. Yeah. Mr. Producer, yeah. We've, all, we've all been there uh, with friends and or loved ones that uh, we want to get on the recovery wagon. And... um Try as we yeah, may. Man. Sometimes you know we're successful, and other times uh, we're 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 not. You don't give up, of course, but uh, you can't make another person do something they're not ready to do, especially when it comes to this thing here, uh, because a person has to really want it for themselves. Um, ultimately, we don't care what motivates them to get started. To be honest, uh, we'll take anything. <laughs> If you want to do it for your dog, we'll take that. Um, but uh, it's if we can get you in the door, then there's a, there's an opportunity there. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it's tough, especially right. Um, kind of like what we said um, to to the caller, and what we've talked about in other shows that old environment and old friends can be a huge predictor in relapse. Uh, sometimes that can be really hard for people who have, you know, maybe one really, really close, really, really good friend uh, who's out there still using it as opposed to going down the avenue of just uh, cutting ties or just moving to kind of an acquaintance um, platform, trying to, to to convince, for lack of a better term, that individual to get his or her life together now. Yeah, and you know we've we've discussed this numerous times on the show. I, I'm just not a um, a fan of um, throwing people to the curb, right? Right. Um, because you you never know if whether or not you can be that role model that catapults somebody into um, into treatment. It's one of the reasons why we've talked about over the years how we, we want to make sure our clients carry themselves with a certain degree of dignity and respect, um, especially towards others who are struggling in that same, in the, in the same, in the same, I'm sure you could hear that. Yeah, we can <laughs> hear this, that it, one. That's, that means that's the mailman coming. Um, 
in the same arena, the people that are struggling in the same arena, that just because you're uh, you, you've gotten on the road to recovery, that you then look down upon those who are still struggling. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I don't I don't take too kindly to that. Yeah, of course not. No, and that's something that we've mentioned or, or talked about on the show on numerous occasions, and you bringing that up specifically. And, um, you know, so of course, like you said, we've all been in the position to where maybe a loved one, a friend, somebody close to us, uh, maybe there's a clear need for treatment or to make changes to the way this individual is living, but having to be the person to try and initiate that or or be the catalyst or the driver for that can be very, very challenging. Yep. Uh, let's see. Let's take another call. Hi, you're on with Roach and Recovery. What's your first name and your hometown, please? My name is Bert. I'm from Redwood City. Hi. Welcome to the show. How can we help you? How you doing? I have a question. Uh, how can you deal with uh, negative people when you're in a treatment facility, when you're trying to stay positive yourself? That's the great test, <laughs> um, and it's a and it's a very good learning experience test because you're going to have to deal with the same thing out in society. Exactly. So the the treatment environment is often just a microcosm of society, and so the question becomes: Can you, while you're in that little that smaller environment of treatment, you know, develop the discipline to not. Uh, fall prey to the negativity that might exist in the treatment environment, but instead rise above it, avoid it, um, speak to it, confront it, hold it accountable, etc. Because all those things you're going to have to practice anyway and do in your own life, in your own circle when you get out there. Because you're going to have people in your own circle, whether it's immediate family, extended family, friends, etc., associates, etc., that are going to be negative right. in one way, shape, or form. And you're going to have to be able to maintain your, you know, enforce. Not only you're going to have to do the following. Establish. Um, let me go back. Develop, establish, maintain, and enforce your boundaries. Exactly. Develop, establish, maintain, and enforce your boundaries. You're going to have to do that anyway, so what better place to start practicing that? And trust me, there are going to be people in the treatment environment that are going to give you many opportunities to practice. I know. That's a definite. <laughs> yeah. So right. even though, yeah, even though yeah. It, it's, not, it's, not a re, it's not real, it, it might be ideal, but it's not real for everyone to be positive in the treatment environment. We'd love to have that, but that's not re- reality. So the negativity still serves a purpose. It provides an opportunity for people to work on their self-discipline, work on you know practicing what they're going to have to practice to stay on the right path when they're out there. So it does serve a purpose. Yeah, it does. I'm just afraid they're not going to make it. They may not. Time. They yeah. they may not, but and this may sound cruel, but it isn't. That has nothing to do with you. Very true. Because it's about you making it. That's very true. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. 
Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, we need those negative folk. That's that's right. Uh, <laughs> this is like an old kind of cliche in treatment. Um, but I used to remember uh, people used to say all the time, the the your worst enemy or the person that aggravates you the most or uh-huh. the, your, your roommate, whoever, that that's your best treatment right there, that person. Yep. So if you're trying to do good and the right thing and this person's not listening to the rules and getting the house shut down on a Saturday and everything else, that boy, that person's giving you everything and more than what you're going to need to make it when you get out. Trying to drag you down, get you involved in stuff you shouldn't be involved in, the whole nine yards. They, uh, they serve a necessary purpose. That's right. Now, it may not be good for that person because obviously they're – they're distracted from the things that they should be doing and in, in, in taking advantage of the treatment opportunities. So they're folk, they're not ready. They're obviously, they're not, it's not their time. Right. So they're focused on doing other things, but they serve and we don't purposely do this. We want everyone to come in and try and be positive, but of course, though, just the way the universe works, every other people are going to come in and they're going to, they're going to bring to the table what they bring to the table. And some people are just going to be negative and, 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 and they could be negative and still say out of their lips, you know, Hey, I don't want to do this recovery thing, but they can't help themselves yet in terms of their behavior. Right. And, and the jackpots that they continue to get themselves into. Um, but, in their heart or in their mind, I don't know, one of the two, they still have some inkling of wanting to try, keep trying to do this recovery thing. In that process, in that process, though, while they're existing in the treatment environment, <laughs> you know, whether or not they're going to drag people under the water with them is a fantastic question and fantastic um, thought. In terms of those those people, do they have the self discipline to to withstand it, to buck it, to confront it, to uh, hold it accountable, to squeeze it, as we used to say? You know what I mean? Uh, put yeah. pressure on them to either change and, and 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 conform to what we're doing in terms of being positive, or the environment just becomes so unbearable to you that you know what you do you have to end up leaving. That's what becomes the question. Do those, do those people who are positive put that fantastic peer pressure on the person or persons, plural, who are being negative to pressure them into conforming to what they're right. doing that's positive? That's how you know and, when, you, when the TC is a well-oiled machine. Yep. And I think it's – Fair and truth be told to people that not not always does positive win out in the TC. Sometimes negative wins out, and that's just how it is. And people just have to deal with the negative underlying tension and subculture that has developed, and that's just part of the treatment experience. And sometimes positive wins out, and the experience for most is more pleasurable um and uh what's another way to describe it other than pleasurable 
I don't want to say the 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 wheels are greased to make it seem like it's easier. Yeah, right, right. You know what right, I mean? Right. But um, I think it's important to have negativity because it forces people to deal with that reality and practice dealing with that reality because that's going to be the reality when they leave treatment. It's going to exist in their life in some way, shape, or form. Not everybody in your circle is going to be positive. Uh, by the way, how much time do I have, Mr. Producer? I don't, we don't want to just get uh, cut off by the computer. <laughs> no, no, no. You've got about five <laughs> We're just running minutes. on, running on, talking, and we're just, you know, incessantly talking, not even paying attention hey, to the clock. Hey, it's been three weeks. We're back on the radio. We want to start slapping <laughs> our gums. No, you got about yeah. six minutes. Okay. It was interesting because I was going back looking through the archives um, because I wasn't sure if we had – if we did a show on – which would have been called The Graduate, and we did, but we didn't call it The Graduate. We did the show – we did two shows. One was called The Undergraduate, um, which was about the process leading up to and talking about graduation. And uh, then we did a show called uh, The Postgraduate. Okay. And hit the side note about the undergraduate show, that was one show, one of the shows where we had technical difficulties, and this was a couple of years back, um, technical difficulties. And so we had, that show ended up being split into two parts um, by the time we fixed the technical issue and came back on. So in the archives, it it shows up as two shows. So one, the first one, the the original one says the undergraduate, and then part two just says the graduate. Okay. Um, but I just wanted to see if we actually had talked about the subject of of you know being a graduate and graduation, and we and we have. Um, and I'm glad that we we even uh, broached it again today because we have new listeners, uh, obviously, and. Um, not everybody is patient enough to dig way back into the archives to see. Um, it'd be nice if blog talk, now that I'm thinking about it, um, can change the way they list the shows in the archive. How how are they currently, how's that currently constructed? Um, so... You can there's a you can go to the episodes show I mean page, and depending on what kind of device you're on, if you're on a handheld or if you're even on a computer, I think on a computer it might just be two to three pages. On a handheld, you might have five pages that you have to scroll through of all the shows because we we got a total of um oh, we have a lot of shows so it's. I don't even know the number. By the way, Mr. Producer, yes, sir. Uh, we are up to. Oh, how many listens? Se- how many listens? 7,000 listens. Wow. That's beyond anything we could have thought about, <laughs> imagined about, you know, what have you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. We, I mean, we, didn't, we weren't even thinking about listens. We were just thinking about flapping our gums. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, as of last night, we were at seven thousand listens. So, 
And as we as we opened up, we are today's show will be episode one of season four. We're at the two two no three year uh, anniversary, October nineteenth of the Monsignor's passing, which was our very very first show, which was very first show. Oh, what do you call that? It was um, the inaugural show. It was the inaugural show, or it was the inaugural show, but it was it, it, it came together hastily because we were still in our practice, uh, preparing right. to go live on November seventeenth, two thousand fourteen, um, when uh, we got word that the Monsignor passed away, and we had been practicing for about a month or more on a weekly basis doing practice shows. Um, because we hold ourselves to a high standard, and we wanted to practice, and we wanted to sound professional. We wanted our equipment to operate right. We yeah, didn't to get want to into sound that like subject. a bunch of clowns, right? <laughs> um, holding two tin cans together. But yeah, we wanted the sound quality to be good, and so we spent a lot of time playing with that and going back and forth with that. But, um, yeah, I mean – we were two weeks ahead of schedule or three weeks call it when we went live like I said because the Monsignor passed away and so but I think uh, the can you guess which of the top three which three shows have the most listens oh we that would be that's tough the top three, uh, I'll do real quick because we got about a minute here. I'm going to say, um, oh, my gosh, maybe the maybe the uh, the trimesters of treatment and maybe the, the 10, I'll guess, too, the trimesters of treatment and the 10, the 10 commandments, like the 10, 10 philosophy, uh, 10 commandments, the top 10. Nope. Uh, the top three are the 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 day top. History shows. Oh, okay. The okay. First, second, and third shows of you know the daytop trilogy that we did. Those are the top three. And another interesting thing I found out real quickly last night is that we have listens in India, twenty-two percent. Uh, Asia, sixteen percent of the total. Wow. That's that is interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Well, man, let's just keep doing it. Let's just keep doing yep. it. We're gonna, we're up against it, but uh, another great show. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank everybody who called in to participate in the Recovery Support Time segment, or folks who just called in to listen. Uh, the ongoing support is greatly appreciated. Everybody out there is the reason we do this. Uh, hopefully, if everything plays itself out properly, we will see everybody again in two weeks. And with that said, we wish everybody a safe and productive couple of weeks and fun couple of weekends.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.